this play is a musical. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of No Script, back to the full-length play world. Yeah? That is right. We are (laughs) returned from a journey. And I would say it was a long journey, but that's sort of the opposite of true, really. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what It was a short (laughs) journey in that we've spent the past month talking about one acts and short plays, comparing their forms and thinking about the ways that different playwrights structure plays like that. It was a wonderful little journey, and we talked about just four really, really great plays. We did, yeah. If you haven't had a chance to go back and or to listen through those, I highly recommend you go back and listen to them. There were a great couple of conversations about a really uh, a unique form of theater, right? The one-act form of theater. So uh, very excited to have done it, but also excited to now be getting back into full-length plays. It's a whole different uh, experience reading the play, especially after the context of, of a month of, of short plays. That's right, yeah. And, and not only are we returning to a full-length play this week, we're returning to a musical. Well, not not returning. Yeah. We haven't talked about this musical before, but we are, we're jumping back with both feet into the long format and looking at a musical. This week, we're talking about just a great, great newer musical, Fun Home, book and lyrics by Lisa Cron, music by Janine Tesori, and uh, the front of my script says, so I'll just say for, for the public that it is based on a graphic novel by Alison Bechtel. Yeah, this was a brand new play for me. Um, just just read it this last week for the podcast, and I'm excited to get into it. It's you know it was done a couple years ago. We'll get into the context in a bit, but uh, it's been around for a while, and and yet I never never read it before. And I loved this script because a couple of years ago, I got to see a production here where I live of Fun Home that was remarkable. I'll bring it up just a little bit more when I do the context for the script, but that's why it made its way into our rotation was something that I saw a few years ago that made a a lasting, pretty deep impression on me, both in its theatrical techniques. There's some really unique, fascinating little playwright. In in fact, uh, I'll tell the story now. Why not? Yeah, go for it. Go for (laughs) it. I saw this play in 2017 at Theater Squared, which is my local regional professional house, a great, great theater. And I saw it. My my wife is a volunteer there, so she will uh, usher and get to see most of the stuff that they do. And then when there's something there that she thinks I'll particularly love, we'll go back and then see it again together. And so when she saw Fun Home, she came home and said, you have to go see this play. It's it's everything that I love. (laughs) It's got such strong theatricality. It's got really unique writing techniques and different ways that the playwright has uh inserted just some very memorable images and some memorable words like that the caption feature of the whole script which we'll talk about and the other part of it that I love is that it's an adaption I'm a huge lover of adapted work and to see how a playwright takes something that was not originally a play and makes a stage drama of it so it it hit all my buttons and made a really lasting impression (laughs) on me so I'm really excited to talk about it 
Yeah, there's so much great theatricality in this play. Before we get into the context and the synopsis and the conversation around the play itself, I do want to take just a moment and thank all of those who have gone over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast and become patrons over there. Those of you who are longtime listeners to the show know that we love to do this show. It is a labor of love for us. We love getting to have these conversations with each other and with the greater community online. Uh, alas, it is not a free endeavor. There are some fees associated with uh, running the podcast, both for hosting and for the cost of scripts and the considerable amount of time we both put into the podcast. So if you are looking for a way to get more involved with NoScript and and ensure that we continue getting to have these unscripted conversations around theater's best scripts, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. When you get over there, you'll see a couple of different tiers of membership. The lowest one is just for $1. That $1 uh, amount uh, patron level gets you access to patron-only posts where we post just kind of cool things that we find around the theater world and things that uh, strike us as fun for our community. So you get access to that for just that $1 amount. And that $1, $12 over a year uh, helps us out enormously on the show. So uh, if if you have a second, if you're looking for a way to contribute to NoScript, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we will see you over there. And a big, big thank you to those of you who are patrons already. Really, it's because of you that we're able to keep doing the show. Your support allows us to have the support that we need to be able to continue to make NoScript. So a big thanks to you, and I'll just echo Jackson and, and hope that you head on over there. And now, back to the script. But wait! There's more! Before we go back to the script, we do want to let everybody know just about an exciting thing that's happening next week on No Script. If you're part of the No Script community, if you've listened to some of the episodes from our other seasons, you probably know that once a season we try to have a special guest on the show. So instead of Jackson and I talking about a script, Jackson and a guest, or I and a guest, will talk about a script. This time it's my turn, and I'm talking about The Seagull with Dr. Patricia Ralph. She's the um, artist learning specialist Specialist at the Walton Arts Center here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We had a just a great time talking about the Seagull, and I'm really excited for you to hear that conversation. It's of course a remarkable play by Mr. Anton Chekhov, and uh, Dr. Pat, as I affectionately call her, is an incredible person, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing her talk about the Seagull in our conversation. So I hope you'll check that out. That comes out next week as our special guest episode. So uh, come back then. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned for, for, for that next week. A great classic script and a great guest. So look forward to that. And now back to the script. Thank you. We both said it this episode, so there's no there's nothing such, to fight about. It was, it was such equal. balance. <laughs> uh, as we said earlier, Fun Home is based on a graphic novel. Uh, there's probably other plays out there based on graphic novels. This is the only one that I know of. So that, that's a fun feature. And as we talk about how the script works, you'll see, I think, the ways in which it's based on a graphic novel, which is really fascinating. So the graphic novel, it was also called Fun Home, comes out in 2006. Alison Bechtel is the cartoonist. She describes herself that way. It takes about five years to develop the script. If you're interested in how scripts get developed, all the different workshops and stages that this production went through to become what it is now is really fascinating. It was There were some readings done and workshops done all the way as far back as 2009, 2011, 2012. Finally, in 2013, there's a final reading, and then it premieres at the public theater in 
uh, fall of 2013. It's off Broadway. It does very well. Critical success. It then moves on Broadway in 2015 at the Circle in the Square Theater. It it has a national Broadway tour. It, it now has a full regional theater life. Again, that's where I saw it in 2017. Going back to 2014, it was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. We have already talked about the script that actually won that year, which is The Flick by Annie Baker. Fun Home was up against The Flick and then another script called The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence. And um, The Flick ultimately won, but Fun Home is an incredible script and it's got a Pulitzer Prize nomination, which is awesome. It is also a heavily lauded piece outside of that. It won in 2015 the Tony Award for Best Musical, Best Score, Best Book of a Musical, and then it won a slew of other awards. New York Drama Critics, Obie Award, the Outer Critics Circle Award, the Off-Broadway Alliance Awards, all different things as it came out in that 2015 production. So really well-lauded, uh, incredible n- newer musical. I mean, t- what, it premiered in 2013? So it's seven years old now, but it's just got so much interesting things happening in it that I'm not surprised that it was so well received by the critical community and I'm excited to see what we find in it yeah yeah and as a way to kind of transition into the story one of the um, the really important things about this play is it's often lauded as uh, the first mainstream Broadway play to have a lesbian main protagonist um, so it's a really important play in in the theater history. Uh, it was it, the the readings of the comic books uh, occasionally were protested in or sorry the graphic novels, not the comic books. Um, the readings of the graphic novels were occasionally protested, and this play would uh, go and do like songs from from the show as as a way right. to kind of yeah. There's those. this in, it was in South Carolina, I think there was a college that made the graphic novel Fun Home required reading for freshmen, I imagine, as some sort of freshman seminar class. We had that when I was in school, and there were required readings. And so this was that for this college in South Carolina, and the South Carolina state government apparently got pretty upset about it and tried to do all this stuff to punish the college, essentially. And Fun Home, the musical, which was uh, around at the time, came and responded by doing different readings and songs, etc. So that's a pretty cool story in just the life of the play outside of its life on stage in a theater yeah yeah which which moves us into the synopsis which i'll do my best to say, to kind of sum up for y'all here it's a beautiful intricate play um so i'm quite sure my little pithy attempt here is gonna miss some cool <laughs> angles but i'm gonna give it a shot anyway um so this play centers around uh, the main character allison she is a protagonist and uh or the protagonist of the play, and she is kind of working through some of her history. She, her, we find out pretty early on that her father uh, died uh, by suicide, or at least she claims by suicide, and I think the play corroborates um, that he died by suicide. And uh, she's going back in time to kind of uh, figure out how that happened, how her relationship with her father came to that. Um, I think very early on, we discover uh, that her father was gay um, and uh, lived in a relationship with her mother for a long time and had kind of these secret affair relationships. And, uh, and, and so she's, she's going back in time processing. She's a, she's a graphic novel writer. So she's processing via kind of writing the graphic novel. That's the, that's the world of the play is we're kind of watching her write the novel, the graphic novel and process as she goes. Um, along the way, we meet two other versions of herself. There is, uh, the, the cast list anyway 
is medium Allison and small Allison. Um, the, the ages of those, I'm just going to look at my script here just to be sure I get it right. The medium Allison is around 19 years old, uh, a college freshman, and the small Allison is nine years old. So she's looking at these these two different areas of her history and kind of stepping in and out of those scenes as she is recalling these moments. Um, other big characters that uh, of course are in the play are her father named Bruce, um, her mother, Helen, her two brothers, Christian and John. And then there are a number of other characters as well that, that we'll get to in more detail. I'm sure in our conversation that are uh, uh, the, the different characters that her father has uh, relationships with affairs with. Um, they are uh, some of them are students. Uh, some of them are uh, kind of uh, workers for for their family yard work uh, workers and such. But there's Roy, Mark, Roy and Mark are the two named characters of those. Then the, the so the, the the breadth of the play then is an interweaving of these moments where they, she goes back in time. These scenes of her growing up in the fun home, um, which was this uh, ain't not ancient old home in Pennsylvania that her family uh, was renovating and working up, especially her father was working on uh, restoring to its former glory. Right. So the title fun home comes from this interesting, weird childhood that Allison has with her father, who's this incredibly unique individual. He's like a high school English teacher and a funeral home director and a, like, period home restorer. And so the title Fun Home is a reference to the funeral home. It's what the Bechtel family sort of nicknames the, the the funeral home that their father runs. They call it the fun home. And then, of course, it's a play on words, too, as we, you know, it's so much to play so much about the home life of the Bechtels and et cetera. Right, right. And that that takes up most of the storyline of Small Allison, is this kind of uh, relationship in this time where she's growing up, where her father's renovating her, the houses, where they're running this funeral home, and these different relationships are kind of happening on the sly. Um, then there's uh, the, the storyline of Medium Allison, which she goes away to college and uh, kind of has an awakening at college and realizes that she is a lesbian um, and has a relationship with another character called Joan. Um, Joan uh, comes in about halfway through the script as, as uh, this other character. She's part of the, the, the women's union on campus. And uh, so they, they, they uh, fall in love and she tells her parents that she she comes out to her parents and goes home and discovers that her father along around the same time as she comes out to her parents discovers that her father is gay um so she comes home and has this kind of last conversation with her father in the car hoping to find some connection there and uh on after that last night uh, we find out through the the course of the play that uh he dies the next day or very soon after that he dies um so yeah, I, I think that's that's much of the play is just this this kind of processing of of when her father died through these different uh, storylines and kind of looking for what could have changed, what brought it about, or what was made different by their actions along those times. Yeah, so it's it's three timelines that all run forward. There, each individual timeline is linear. 
but those three timelines are interwoven and interlayered. So the whole play doesn't go chronologically from when she was young to when she's an adult. All three of these stories that are all about Allison and the relationship with her father, they all layer into each other. And so we end up getting the feeling of being back and forward and back and forward in time. The central framework, as you described, is that adult Allison in her 40s now is trying to draw, write, create this graphic novel about her father. So she's trying to create Fun Home, the graphic novel, on which the the play is based, which is sort of an interesting, one of those cool things that can happen in theater, the the play about trying to write the graphic novel that the play is about (laughs) is is fairly interesting. What is... So in the foreword of my script, Lisa Cron has a a sort of an author's note of sorts where she tries to make clear that Allison uh, in her 40s, adult, older Allison, whatever, is not a narrator. She wants to be very clear that that is its own timeline which is moving forward and in which there are things accomplished and and uh, character goals and in which she you know is on a journey of some sort. I don't know, Jackson, what's your feeling for what is that journey that the the meta level Allison in her forties who's looking back on these two other timelines, which are very clear in terms of their story pieces, but the the outer framework story is a I don't know it's a little bit more gray or or a little bit more subtle in terms of what the journey of that Allison is. Yeah, she's uh, I I really appreciated that forward. I highly encourage anyone who has the script to read it because it does help uh, with some of the motivation for for the play. Um, I think. My my impression, anyway, that the that the the adult Allison is moving through is this kind of this movement of discovery by which she has to go into the past in order to move herself through to um, more awareness of her present. You kind of get the idea that she's uh, unpacking some stuff that because because her father died when she was in her teens or or her early twenties, depending on how you, you go with the timeline and she's now 40 something and she's unpacking this. So in, in some way, this is uh kind of a self therapy moment, maybe of like trying to figure out how to move through and on past this, this uh, pain that she has kind of bottled up. And to do that, she has to look backwards in order to go forwards. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of the journey that I I read through, at least. Yeah, it seems like in order to do this graphic novel and tell her father and her story in a way that is true and accurate and, and heartfelt, this older Allison has to reinterpret some of these events that she lived through with her father through the lens of what she knows now. And so you go back and you see these things that happen in small Allison's life as you know, as a child with her father, and you have a whole new lens on them, a lens that small Allison doesn't have right away, very, very early in the script, um, you know, it, like, only a few pages in in the dialogue of my script this is one of the lines that older allison says she says caption and we'll talk about the captions here in a minute my dad and i both grew up in the same small pennsylvania town and he was gay and i was gay and he killed himself and i 
became a lesbian cartoonist, which is, you know, it's, it's a wry humor, really strong writing moment yeah. there. But it also gives the audience and Allison herself a way to look at the events that are occurring in small Allison and medium Allison's life that those two people don't have as they're going through the events linearly. And I think that's important because and that's something else the forward talked about is it's 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 important that small Allison and medium Allison be progressing their own story as if the father hasn't died. Like it's it's easy to think about these to to try to interpret these flashbacks um, and, and have the the medium Allison, for instance, kind of work through the angst of wondering if she killed her father as a result of her coming out. But that's not appropriate, at least not in the in the, the view of Lisa Cron, who who is who is really, really stressing that these characters are moving forward independent of the storyline. It is the adult Allison who is going back and looking in, searching for answers, and that that searching is uh, embodied as the wrong word, but uh defined by those captions that we've talked about the 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 ways that she's interpreting the past and one of those things that she's interpreting and working through is the similarities how how much she is alike her father and where their lives have diverged right even in that quote that i read right and he was gay we grew up in the same pennsylvania town he was gay i was gay that so there's all the same up to this point but what happens then he kills himself I become a lesbian cartoonist. So it sets up the structure of looking back and seeing how our lives overlay and then ultimately diverge. And this is set up from the very beginning of the script. The first time that adult Allison uses this caption technique is uh, just after small Allison and her dad, Bruce, are there playing this airplane game. She's trying to get his attention. But the first time that she captions this the, this image of what's on stage is caption. My dad and I were exactly alike. Caption. My dad and I were nothing alike. It is surely no coincidence that that is the first use of the caption technique. Yeah, yeah. It's because it, it's. I mean, through through the whole play, even the, even though these captions are kind of her her uh, her crystallizing of a meaning from past events, we see her struggling with them. We see her kind of. Uh, uh, metaphorically scratching out the first line she tries um, for the caption and trying another one and trying another one and trying another one. So so she's kind of working through this in real time with us as the audience as she's processing these, these old memories. I like that you said that that way, that the captions are her working through these things that she is re-remembering and re-experiencing because in, in the way that the graphic novel will end up working, we know we have the benefit of having the graphic novel is that there'll be these images and these scenes from her past, just like we experience in the play, and then captions which provide that additional level of context. But in order for Allison, the graphic novelist, the cartoonist, the writer, to be able to provide that additional level of context, she has to do the work of understanding what happened in this scene that she's captioning. And so the captions are her attempt to describe the process of understanding. So when she captions something, you're exactly right. She oftentimes ends up discarding her first several attempts at captioning it because the context she initially tries is not quite what happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes she's just there to observe, observe, right? Like some of the times she's she's looking at 
the rooms or, or one of her survival strategies in, in some of the scenes that get really personal for her are to just kind of describe what's happening, describe the room, describe the decorations, describe what someone is doing. But then she has to crystallize the captions into an interpretation, into something that applies to at least the story she's trying to tell herself about how her past went. And you can see how that would be a journey and how that would be difficult, even for you. I don't know what your life has been like, dear listener. But, you know, (laughs) if you try to imagine going back and living through, reliving, remembering some of your childhood memories and trying to write crystallizing sentences, not about what you remember, but what was really going on in those moments. You know, I think about some of the memories from my life that are crystallized and very clear in my head, things that I can easily remember remember and then if i try to say this is what was really happening not just what i remember but the stuff that i know now given the the you know the stuff that i can say now given the knowledge i have now i can look back and provide some sort of uh a capstone sense i mean that's difficult for me and i haven't had that hard of a life (laughs) yeah yeah it's a terrifying thing right you start looking back at memories that you kind of uh uh hold um with high esteem in your mind and you begin picking apart well what was happening behind the scenes what were mom and dad actually thinking what were they what were they kind of driving towards what were their goals at the moment how did i misunderstand this how did they misunderstand me and uh i think some of that has a weird nostalgia effect for the audience too because i mean Many people have done this. Many people have done this kind of work on themselves and and investigated their past and what happened to them. So there's there's definitely a uh, camaraderie that is built between Allison and the audience in this attempt to look back at her family history and figure out what exactly was going on back there. And so... What are some of the things that were going on back there, Jackson, especially as it relates to small Allison's experience of her father? Because that's the that's the version of Allison with the least knowledge and insight. And so the most new context to provide medium Allison's interaction with her father is there's there's just less that needs updating because she gets a lot of the information in the course of the story. But small Allison is missing a lot. It's true. And it's kind of hard to differentiate between what we as the audience are picking up on and what small Allison is picking up on. Because what what we as the audience are picking up on are there there is definitely love between them. Um Allison especially is really desirous of of love and we and and even just like physical interaction with her father who rarely ever touches her in the play. The one moment that he touches her uh, explicitly in the play um is when they're playing airplane. Uh, that's the like the first uh, scene of the play is them, uh, you know, her up on the feet of her father playing airplane. Um, so so there's that interaction. But then there's kind of like a, a Bruce wants Allison to do well, I think, is is maybe the, the, the best uh, or the best version of, of Bruce's goals for Allison uh, that manifests as him always kind of critiquing her. Um, and, and so a lot of the interactions between them in the play have these kind of formative moods of here, I brought you something, dad. Oh, here's how you can do it better. Um, so, so that, that's a lot of what small Allison is unpacking. Yeah, it, it, the, the play does a really good job of showing us this father figure in Bruce that is, 
I don't know. See, I don't know, Jackson, you should reflect on this with me because my sense of Bruce is that he's an absolute tyrant and, you know, he's he's got a lot of really hard things to say to a daughter as a father. His reactions to a lot of what Allison brings him throughout the play are fairly negative. His treatment of his wife is pretty bad. He has a series of extramarital affairs, including with underage young men. All of this is true of him. And it's also true that I have a deep well of sympathy for him. Yeah, what a paradox. (laughs) What a paradox. I mean, we see not only the negative effects that the 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 fact that he has to remain in the closet or feels that he has to remain in the closet have on him and his family and so we see what that causes him to do the mistreatment of his family that that causes but we also see the pain within him of having to maintain in himself in the closet right that he has to hide this part of himself we get the sympathy for that journey the pain of that thing and then we also, we we get to see, and I think the play offers us the opportunity to render some judgment on the mistreatment of the family that results from that. I agree. I think, I think some of the reason, at least functionally, why we have such sympathy for Bruce is because he has a lot of songs <laughs> and he has a lot of chances to share his side of the story in those songs and the way that he's written. And I think the way he's performed in the, in the, in the, uh, at least in the recordings that I'd heard, but also just the way he's written evokes that, that, uh, sense of sympathy for where he's at. He's in this like kind of trapped state. He's in kind of almost a manic need to perform well for people and to make things, uh, look well for people. Um, and, and so, so he's kind of on this track that almost he can't get off, um, that, or that it's, he can't see a way off, I guess. Um, and, 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 and that's a sympathetic thing. And I think, I think some of it is how much time we spend inside of his head and kind of these monologue songs that, that happen. And of course we have the benefit of knowing how his story ends. It's, it's hard to see a character as so terrible and so tyrannical knowing that at the end of the journey, they commit suicide knowing yeah. that this comes from a depression deep and harmful enough to cause a person to commit suicide. Yeah. No, I think it's brilliant to kind of set that up at the beginning because it, it immediately sets all of these, you know, it, it, at the very least bad parenting <laughs> measures into a different light, into into a... What is what is this? Uh, what is the underlying need that isn't being met for this character, <laughs> and why is it manifesting this way? And so we have this, you know, new interpret. And it's not really new because we've never experienced the scenes before. But w- because we know how the story ends with adult Allison, right? We live in her timeline of knowing what's going to happen, and so we experience the scenes with forward knowledge that the characters don't have, with some dramatic irony. So scenes where the father acts in a specific way, has a specific harsh thing to say, we have the benefit of knowing what might be behind all of that. I'm thinking of the the scene where Bruce and small Allison are in the diner. And he is really strict with her about keeping her barrette on to keep her hair out of her eyes. And she wants to get her hair cut. And he threatens her that she needs to keep her barrette in her hair or he's going to wail on her is what he says. 
And of course, that's terrible. Right? I mean, that's awful, right? And it, it it shows that he was forcing Allison. There's other scenes that show the same thing: forcing small Allison to dress and behave like he imagines a young girl should, even though that's not who she wants to be. So that that's tyrannical in so many ways. And yet, with adult Allison, we have the benefit of knowing: well, he isn't allowed to be who he wants to be. He feels trapped by the society in the same way that he's trapping his daughter. Mm-hmm. Which which translates throughout the family too. Uh, we 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 eventually get a song from Helen, which is uh, Allison's mom, and she has a very similar reality. She feels very trapped in this relationship. She knows he's having these affairs. She's known like as soon as they had a relationship. Basically, she talks about uh, a very early affair when they were still living in Germany before the kids were born, uh, describing uh, his his army partner, his partner who is uh, a fellow. Uh, uh, recruit in the army and uh and so she's known for a long time that this is happening and yet she's she's believed that she was uh supposed to be uh attaining a certain standard of wifehood and thus could not could not uh, be her true self in this relationship either and this forward journey that Allison goes on adult Allison of provide uh, understanding new context to those memories that she's held on to so long. One of the things that's a little bit unclear to me is what has happened with her and her memories of her father in the intervening years between medium Allison and adult in her forties, Allison, because that's 20 some years later. And we know that the suicide happened in media Allison's timeline just a few months after she came out to her parents is when her father commits suicide. And so I don't quite know what has happened in those 20-something years that this journey of recontextualizing old memories is new to adult Allison in the adult Allison timeline. Yeah, no, it's there's there's definitely like just just room for speculation in that realm. Um, I think one thing that uh, the speculation could add is to this idea that she's kind of locked away a lot of this. And you kind of get the opportunity to wonder if this is a season of self-work for her. And she has the space. She's now had some life uh, separating her from it. And she can now process and is now healthy enough to go back and look at what happened and try to figure out not necessarily what went wrong, but just what happened, how, how it all happened. And and the core wondering she's having is whether she had any part to play in her, in her father's death. Right. Yeah. That's one of the other things alongside this backwards looking question of, am I like my father? Are, are we, were we on a same path that was able to diverge somehow and why and where did that happen is this other question of what did I have to do with the fact that my father killed himself? It, what's interesting to me is that both of those questions are backward looking, right? It's about what happened in the past. And so what is happening now for Allison in the present? She's decided to write this book is one thing. We don't know why. We're not given the context or the stakes for why this graphic novel is happening and happening now. It's clear that this processing she's doing is crucial to her and is going to move her forward 
somehow into the next phase of her life or into the next phase of her relationship with the memories of her father. But I'm I'm not always crystal clear on exactly what or how those things are. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah... It's kind of delightfully open, I guess, for the production team to decide. I mean, what another option? I'm this is this is clearly unscripted, y'all. Um, one <laughs> one 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 option that floats in my mind is wondering, like what you said, am I on the same path? You know, am I uh, just kind of taking a step back and wondering, am I on a similar path as my father? I think there are distinct uh, differences, and I think by the end of the play, we discover no. Um, she's she's there's there's a core difference in that she is uh, kind of openly out. Um, uh, and, and he was not, um, but still there's that wondering of, uh, you know, am I, is, is there a heredity in this? That could be a wondering of, and, and a way to phrase it in a forward thinking sense. Um, can, am I on a path that I need to change or am I on a path that's okay uh, at this moment? Or perhaps even perhaps a little differently, maybe the question is not of heredity, but of like survivor's guilt. Mm, you know, yeah. she's on this path. They're, the early parts of their lives were very similar in so many ways. And there comes this moment of divergence that na- that Allison is now still alive. And uh, we don't, we don't, we aren't given any indication that she's suffering from severe depression or anything like that, like her father was. And so is this a question of, you know, what, wh- why do I, ha- am I, why am I able to live the life that I'm able to live when my father was not? Mm-hmm. Some of that is 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 kind of directly manifested in in the uh, telephone wire song. Um, I, I don't know exactly the title of the song, but it's telephone a scene. wire <laughs> is it? Okay, good. Uh, I assumed it was, but I wasn't sure. Um, but it's it's the last car ride that she takes with her dad, and and in this scene, different from every other scene in the play. Um, adult Allison assumes the role of one of the past characters. That's right. So this is a scene in medium Allison's timeline. She has gone to college already. We've seen her discover or at least admit to herself that she is a lesbian. She's had she's in her first relationship with a woman. She's written her parents and come out to them. Her father did not respond well. Neither did her mother. She's brought her first relationship with a woman home. Her name is Joan. She's brought Joan home and her father wants to take a drive with her. Now, up to this point, this this whole sequence of events has been played by the actress playing Medium Allison, the college student. And a number of times throughout the play, adult Allison, reliving these memories, but as an observer, has said something like this. It's only writing. It's only drawing. I'm remembering something. That's all. I'm you know, so she's saying, I'm experiencing, I'm just watching, I'm just remembering, this is not something I'm actually living through. You would imagine this is something that she's saying to herself to calm herself down, to help separate her from the intense emotional things she's living through or remembering again. But she says this throughout the play, and then there comes this moment where that stops being true. She's no longer just remembering, just writing, just drawing. She's living because adult Allison assumes the role of medium Allison. It's a delightfully theatrical moment. Yeah, and 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 what happens is kind of we've we've been with her in real time processing this in the in the present, but now we're with her in real time processing this past moment. Um, so you you 
you and we get the perspective of adult Allison in the car, reliving this moment. I don't think that she's changing anything necessarily, but she is singing this kind of interior monologue song that perhaps was not not what medium Allison had in her mind at the time. Some of it might not have been, but I think some of it was. It's a the song Telephone Wire is her describing the things that she sees outside the car as her and her father are on this last drive together. And at the same time, trying desperately to convince herself to say something. And I think there's probably a dual path in this. And this is perhaps why the moment is so delightful and so well constructed. Medium Allison, in her version of the timeline, is thinking, I need to say something about this thing that is between my father and I. That I've come out, that he's not happy about it, that my mother's not happy about it. That now, and in fact, at this point now, she knows that her father is gay and has had a series of affairs. So she wants to talk to him about that she's desperate to start that conversation and adult Allison who's the one playing the scene she's you know the same words echo a different context in her timeline which is she's saying to herself what could I have said to change the course of events that comes next mm-hmm yeah so so it's like this 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 crazy multiple head spaces that are going on in in the car here and wow there's a couple of interpretation moments that I'd be curious around. Do you think that she, do you think that medium Allison ever says anything to her dad on the car ride? Um, well, that's, that's... I think we, I think we're led to believe that the conversation comes up in general terms, right? Her father brings up uh, some, some things. We learn that he, he pretty openly tells her he had a relationship with a man when he was a freshman in college. Again, one of those parallels, just like she has her first relationship with a woman when she's a freshman in college. But when medium Allison was being played by adult Allison, just to reinforce <laughs> that again. <laughs> yep, yep. When medium Allison played by adult Allison says, me too, I'm the same as you. This is, I, I felt that too. She gets no acknowledgement about yeah. the fact that she said that from her father. Now, my interpretation of the scene is that she truly did say that in the reality of the past. And it's true that her father basically just ignored it. Yeah. I think that's the interpretation that is there for the taking. And I, and as I look over the scene again now in front of me, there are ones that are definitely, she is definitely speaking throughout the scene. Medium Allison is speaking throughout the scene. Uh, there's some required responses from Bruce, but that's, you, you brought attention to the paragraph or the, the outbreak from Allison, uh, the, 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 the me too, since I was like five, I preferred uh, boy shirts and pants that, that monologue. That's my wondering. Cause there is no response from her dad. Um, and it and it's a painful scene if he's ignoring her. Um, it's also a painful scene if it's just like uh, future Al- or present Allison, forty three year old Allison, trying something new in the scene and it not working. Right, and and I think the, the reason why I think that that is truly what happened between Medium Allison and her father is that it it is probably the culminating, crystallizing moment for one of the long-standing problems between the in the relationship of Allison and her father. One of the reasons why the relationship is so complicated is that Allison has felt her whole life that her father never really saw her. 
He always wanted her to act and behave in a specific way as a specific kind of person. When she finally decides to come out, he basically says, you're being dramatic. Don't put a label on it. I don't put a label on stuff for me. Why would you put a label on stuff for you? I'm not. Again, he doesn't see her. And then in this final moment, this final car ride, he finally reveals more of himself than he's probably ever revealed to her. This is this is where I was. You know, I grew up in this community and all these young boys sort of messed around in this barn and it wasn't a big deal for them, but it sort of inspired in me the knowledge that I had my whole life that I was gay and I had my first male relationship, relationship with a male when I was in college. He reveals all this stuff and she says, finally, finally he's going to see me. I'm going to reveal something about me too. And even then he doesn't. Yeah. He still doesn't see her. And, and that's painful. You're right. It's painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the the switch in that scene to him, especially the switch to him talking about his new house project. I feel yeah. like that's oh, that's like one of the most like laden throughout uh small Allison's timeline is him choosing the house project over her. And and in this moment, this moment of of almost connection, he talks about a new project that he's working on at another house. So what about that new project, Jackson? We know that Bruce is into house restoration. He he's basically turned his home where he raised his children, at least the ground floor of it. We don't really have any sense of whether like the, their bedrooms and stuff are this way, but at least the ground floor of it is a perfect period recreation. It's like a historical home that he restored himself. He's got all the exact right furniture and the exact right books and they're all in the exact right places and it's perfectly clean and he wants the historical society to recognize it. So that's kind of who he is as a reconstructor. And then in medium Allison's timeline, we learn that he's purchased this just uh, like ruined shell of a home out on the highway that he wants to restore, I guess, into another sort of period home project. And this is happening amidst this these final few months of his life, this crystallizing crucial moment in his life and in Allison's memory of her father everything's about to happen and of course real life stuff like that happens all the time there's lots of stuff going on at once but in the world of a play everything is specific so if you're the playwright what is it about this home project that causes you to include it yeah I think so so the it's going to be difficult to, to weed out my own interpretations from this. So I'm going to just try to do observations. We'll see how, how I do. Um, the new house manifests for him a new beginning in some ways. I think he's all his, his last song monologue, Bruce talks about how much he loves beginnings and, and this feeling of flying high on, on beginnings. And uh, there are certainly, uh, there are no explicit echoes of the Icarus uh, myth in the play, I don't think. Um, however, the comic book deals in the Icarus myth all over the place, or the, the graphic novel deals in the Icarus myth all over the place. So there is this this kind of, I'm flying high, I, I love this feeling of beginning something, but underneath it is this kind of crumbling under foundation. That's that's the that's the the whole of his last song, his his kind of exit song, is him describing his life as this kind of crumbling house that he's in. And yet there are days when the sun hits the parlor in just the perfect light and it's like perfect. It's beautiful. And he sees what it could be. He sees uh, what 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 could happen to the place. 
And I think that's kind of how he views himself in some ways. I think he's having a lot of trouble growing old. He's having a lot of trouble with this trauma of having stayed in the closet for so long and the effects that it's had on him and on his family. Um, and so he's he, the, the, the house in terms of what the playwright or what the author chose to, to use the house as, as a catalyst for the final moments of the play um, is, is this chance for him to look at his life in the, in the uh, focus or the lens of this new house that he's trying this, this really terrible house that he passed on years before we find out he looked at the house and he's like, no, there's no way this can be redeemed. But now he's trying like one more big attempt at the end to try to redeem this house. And it's the catalyst for him processing what ends up being his death. I think you're exactly right. I think that the house is, it becomes this really carefully crafted metaphor and it, it's one of those things that the metaphor is so on point that I wonder in Alison Bechtel's life how all this stuff fell in like the real timeline of her life because it, you know if it truly falls at this moment in the story as it does in the play it's an incredibly profound metaphor this house that again as you say so importantly he passed on earlier in his life maybe just like earlier in his life he had the chance to make a choice he says in his letters does, to yeah. uh, Media Mouse, and you know, I, I had a chance. I had a couple moments early in my life where I could have, he calls it, take a stand. Again, he's being sort of patronizing about her decision to come out as a lesbian, but that's what he's referring to. That I could have, quote unquote, taken a stand like you are, but I said no. And now later, and so that metaphor applies so clearly and so perfectly to that this part of his life, this house, this crumbling house that he sees could be beautiful. And you're right, this this is what he sings about in his the monologue before his death. The house is what he sings about in beautiful, heartbreaking, metaphoric language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just there's 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 a kind of repeating line that that he has. It's something I'm trying to find. If you find it first, just go ahead and interrupt me, but it's like the I want line or Yes, yeah. It's a it's a theme through the whole play that's introduced very early in um, a song where the Bechtel family is about to be, they're about to receive this uh, guest from the historical society to look at the home. And Bruce is really stressed about it. He's gone upstairs to get himself ready. And the family has to get the house ready. And it's a whole bunch of cleaning and putting away. And they, they, they sing about it as sort of being a metaphor for hiding all of the chaotic, hard parts of their life, just like they're hiding all the parts of this house that aren't like a perfect historic reconstruction. And in that song, they introduced this theme of he wants, he wants, speaking about Bruce. He wants it like this. He wants the house cleaned like this. He wants this put away. He wants this put away. He wants this put here. He wants, he wants, he wants. And then Bruce comes on and starts to sing, I want, I want, I want. And then just a few scenes later, that I want is repurposed as he has a young man, a handyman, shirtless, and he's feeding him alcohol in a, in one of the back rooms, and he starts to sing, I want, I want, I want. And that theme of I want, I want, I want plays through the whole script. Mm-hmm. And, and, and multiple characters grab onto that I want, like uh, uh, small Allison's uh, refrain in that first, or, or in many of the scenes, but I think in that first scene as well as I want to play air, airplane. I want to, I want to, I want to. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that theme of I want seems to be like a, a never-ending drone for Bruce. 
Um, always, always wanting a new beginning, always wanting another chance at something, uh, always wanting to kind of feel the, 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 the high of flying on something new. Um, and and it's to kind of return to take this point and kind of return it back to one of our older conversations here. This is such a great example of how the play deals sympathetically with the situation that Bruce is in the hard, world that he's been in to have to stay in the closet his whole life and never to be able to brace his true self is who he really is how hard that is the play deals with that sympathetically and at the same time does not excuse him for the choices he makes as a result of that right so the the refrain i want i want i want it in the original song they they end the song by he wants more he wants more and that mm-hmm. is one of those things where we see why Bruce is in so much pain. And at the same time, we're allowed to see that he he did not have to make the decisions that he made to put his family in. He does not have to want more all the time. It's okay to have both things in our head at the same time about the character, to see the pain and to see the bad choices that he makes and the harm that he causes his family. And I think some of that permission is given to us by Allison, the the person who who arguably perhaps Helen also has a corner on this, but arguably could have, could have been the one who was hurt the most by her father, or at least the one that we're introduced to uh, that could have been hurt the most. And yet she also, she's our perspective, right? So we're experiencing the play through adult Allison. And she carries a compassion for her father, or at least on the page she does. And I think in the music that I've listened to, she is approaching this moment compassionately uh, in some, in some way of love for her father still, despite all of this. So we are invited into that space as well by the main, the, the protagonist of the play and wondering around that. This play is a musical. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, we, we talk about themes. We talk about the big kind of dramatic sweeps of this. But so much of it is informed by the fact that this play is a musical. Like so much of the empathy that is evoked is evoked in these long soliloquies, these big songs. Um, some of the like my like favorite moments of the play are are the allison songs um especially like a a medium allison has this great kind of awakening song of changing my major um she has another awakening song when she's small allison called ring of keys which is a lovely song um when she's kind of discovering she's discovering that she might uh be attracted to this uh delivery woman uh, and and this is where that the storytelling notes that we get from lisa cron at the beginning of the play help so much to understand why what was landed on in the musical is so great. She talks about how when they initially were writing the early drafts of the script, the moments where Allison as small Allison and medium Allison would get a sense of who she really was or, um, you know, something like that where those moments would happen. She, they originally had wrote them with this sort of sense of foreboding and a pain because they were writing with that knowledge of uh, adult Allison, which is what does my coming out have to do with the suicide of my father? Did I cause that in some way? How did my path diverge? But when they went back and decided 
how can we tell this story best? They realized that that is not the experience that Small Allison and Medium Allison had in experiencing those moments because they didn't have the knowledge of the father's suicide at that point in their lives. So they sort of rewrote those awakening songs. And you're right, they become two of the best songs in the play. Small Allison sings about this woman, a delivery woman who comes into the diner with her father and she's, uh, she's got a short haircut and she's wearing jeans and boy clothes, quote unquote, for the time, and how that sort of awakened in small Allison the sense of you're getting to do what I want to do. And Mm -hmm. then medium Allison, the changing my major sign, that might be the best song in the whole show. Yeah, it's just really uh, well written, cleverly written, and uh, yeah, it really tells the story well. It's this great moment after Joan and her have made love for the first time and she's waking up before Joan and really nervous about about uh, their interaction once she wakes up and it's just very well written uh, tells the story beautifully and just it, it's what musicals do really well it condenses like what could be you know maybe a whole act of a play into one song and you still get the same uh feeling at the end of it as if you'd sat through a whole act of a play and it, it's so joyous is what's so great about it the the writing of the song is this it plays on this idea that she's going to change her major to sex with Joan yeah that that's she, you know the 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 wellspring of joy that has come up about of finally embracing who she is and being able to do that in in this way with Joan has he says she's just so joyful about it and exuberant and so she sings this sort of silly wild song that is such a great reflection of that pure joy that you can you can feel sometimes in your life when something has really moved forward and changed for you. And that joy comes up in in other songs as well. There's this great the they shoot a commercial for uh for the fun home for the funeral home when they're kids. Like she, uh Allison and her two brothers shoot this like I think basically like a 70s ad um <laughs> about about uh the fun home. And so the music brings that joy through the show. At the same time that it brings this low resonance of kind of beautiful sadness uh, that that pulls you into the characters and their kind of tragedy um, along through the whole show. And the juxtaposition of the joy and the pain is part of the story as well, right? The joy, the experience of pure bliss that she feels when she sings, I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. And (laughs) that is directly part of her processing of the death of her father because her father does not get to have that moment mm-hmm. of coming out embracing who he really is and she wonders is that part of why he did what he did and is the fact that i was able to do this in my life was able to live my life the way i wanted to in the way that he never could part of why he did what he did and so you the joy and the pain become interwoven in this messy very real, very honest, raw description of her life. I think that's going to be where we end the show. Uh, we, we, we've come up against our time frame again. There is so much more, as always, to talk about uh, in, in, in this uh, fantastic play. Um, but that's the great part is we get to continue having the conversation with you. So we extend the invitation. If you have listened to this play, been in this play, saw this play, um, we'd love to keep talking about Fun Home with you. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And uh, we'd love to keep uh, having the conversation. Oh, and Gmail. We also have a Gmail. Did you know that? Weird. Uh, uh the, all the usernames on all those social media sites are at NoScriptPodcast and the Gmail is NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. 
Definitely. Please join us next week. Special guest, Dr. Patricia Ralph. She and I talk about the seagull. You're going to want to hear it. She's a delightful, delightful human, and we just had a great conversation, so I hope you'll look forward to that. If you'd like to recommend the podcast to somebody, that'd be a huge way that you can help us out. You can send them to Podbean, to Google Play, to Apple Podcasts, or to Spotify. We Our episodes are posted in all those places. But if you're connected to our Facebook, that's a very easy way to find the new episode as we post a link to it every Monday when they are released least so until next week when we are talking about the seagull uh i'm jackson nikolai i'm jacob mann christensen thanks for listening to no script the podcast we'll see ya.